Uh, man, it is great to be with you guys this morning, especially here in person. This is actually a little known fact. This might surprise you. This Sunday is annually the highest rated Sunday for our metrics of our online service. Isn't that weird? I wonder why. I don't know what that is, but the fact that you woke up and came here this morning, I love that you are here. I love seeing your faces. We are a church who genuinely wants to be a place where people know that they are loved, and being together is a powerful opportunity for us to do that. Hey, listen, as we've been in this series, in this time of Lent, where we're reflecting on the state of our souls, on the reality of our need for a Savior and the places where God enters into our brokenness and brings healing. We've been in the book of Psalms and we've talked about the sound of faith because oftentimes the reality is that our faith does not sound neat and put together. It doesn't sound curated. It doesn't look like an Instagram post with a Bible and the coffee and the pen and the highlighter. It sometimes is frustrating. It's defined by doubt and wrestles and difficulty. And so we've been going through these psalms and looking at the ways that we pray and examining how those prayers are often wrestles with the sharp edges of our souls. And I know for a lot of us that's resonated in a really powerful way. And we've looked at praying out of anger and doubt and fear. But listen, for others of us, if we're honest, our faith doesn't sound that way. And it's as powerful as the scriptures are in those places, it doesn't really resonate with us because the sound of our faith is pretty quiet. Our faith doesn't really sound like anything. And even as we hear the wrestles of the people in Scripture, we struggle to connect because during the week, we don't really find ourselves thinking that much about our faith or about the Lord. And outside of Sunday morning, we really go from Monday to Saturday evening um, harried, stressed out, anxious, pursuing a million different things, and we don't really have time to listen to our faith. The sound of our faith is drowned out by a million different voices that surround us. And I think the reason for that is because our hearts can get to a place where they're largely disconnected from the reality of who God is. Uh, it's, it's not that our hearts are broken. Our hearts are actually designed to be captivated. And we are always drawn to what captivates our hearts. And so for many of us, for all of us actually, at some point, we'll find our hearts captivated by the shiny objects that surround us. Our hearts are captivated by the pursuit of success. Our hearts are captivated by our Instagram feeds. Our hearts are captivated by relationships and work and sex and money and our sports team. Listen, none of those are inherently evil unless you're a Spurs supporter. The rest of it, though, is fine. None of those things are inherently evil, but they captivate our hearts in a way that makes us forget this key reality about our faith, that ultimately our faith does not sound like it should when we are not captivated in awe of who God is. We're not a who God is people, we're a what God does people. It's just the culture we live in. We're a results-based culture. And when we look at our faith, we naturally ask the question, what is it practically doing for me? How is God helping me? How is my life different? How is my life better because of Jesus? And even culturally in evangelicalism, we have bent towards answering that as the primary reason that we engage our faith. In the 80s, we were like, listen, church isn't really working for people. We need to trick it up a little bit. We need to make church fun again. It's not your grandparents' church, right? And so even as an institution, We've said God by himself isn't enough. We really need to engage people so they understand what he can do for you. Let's get practical and relevant. And God does things for us. 
But when we slide into this faith that is drilled down on what God does for us, we miss who he is. And when we miss who God is, we stop being awed by him. We stop being aware of the nature of God. We stop being aware of the majesty of God and the greatness of God. And our heart and our affections to worship and praise God dry up and naturally redirect to those places that we find awe in. We never pursue that which we find boring. And if we're honest, a lot of our faith sounds quiet because God's kind of boring. That's kind of boring. So when it's time to engage him, but we're doing a deep dive on Twitter on West Coast bank runs, maybe that was just me, um, we, we draw towards what's interesting and what's flashing right now. Maybe it's, I could engage the Lord in prayer right now, but there's a game on, or I could engage the Lord in prayer, but I need to go to the gym. I could do this, but this, but this. I could do this, but I just bought the new spy book on Amazon, and I'd frankly rather read that because it's just more interesting to me. So how did God become boring? It's because we forgot who he is. So we're going to be in Psalm 8 today, and we're going to talk about the necessity, the necessity of praying out of awe. When we become disconnected from who God is, we become disconnected from the affections that were created in our hearts for God. And so to reignite that affection, that awe, we have to start in our prayer life. So this is Psalm 8. It's considered a psalm of praise. It's actually the first psalm of praise in the book. And this one's going to be a little bit different because if you've been with us for the past few weeks, the other psalms of lament and complaint kind of have a pattern. God, my life is terrible. God, save me. God, thank you for saving me. This one's a little different. This is focused less on the author and more on the Lord. This is focused less on what God does and more on who God is. And so let's just kind of jump in here and see what it looks like for us to pray out of awe. Lord, this literally the first word of this is Lord. Lord. It's translated, O Lord, our Lord. But if you read this in the Hebrew, it's literally just God's name with an exclamation point behind it. How majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the danger. So let's just stop there because he says some really important things about the person and nature of God. He says, how majestic is your name in all the earth? He says, God, your very name is majestic, brings glory and might. It reflects perfection and sovereignty. And he's going to get more into this later. But the first thing he does is says, Lord, you're great and amazing. How famous are you in the earth? How known are you? How superior you are to everything else around you? Verse 2 sounds a little bit weird, so let's talk about it. He says, out of the mouths of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes. So what does that mean? This is a value of God's that you see throughout the Old and New Testament, that God uses the weak things of the world to display his strength. The, the Hebrew language here is actually talking about like building a fort. And so when it's talking about establishing strength, another way that you could read that is like building a fort. And specifically, here was the pattern that the author was referring to. And it, it makes sense. We still do this today. When you would conquer or create, because it's talking about God in the aftermath of creation. 
when you would conquer, you would instantly build a defense to maintain what you conquered. We still do this. This is still pretty typical military strategy, right? He's saying in the aftermath of creation, God strengthened and defended his creation through the mouths of babes. Another way of communicating this idea is that in God's strength, he subdued anything that could possibly threaten what is his with the weakest option available to him. So great is God's strength that he can use the weakest in the universe to uphold his territory and accomplish his purposes. This is a praise to God for his strength and his sovereignty. So he does two things. He praises God's majesty and he praises God's strength. And his heart is stirred in awe of the reality of the greatness of God. And I think sometimes we've exchanged the awe of the majesty of God for the awe of the majesty of the right now. And we're distracted. We're pragmatic people. There's a lot going on. Awe has kind of been drained out because our dopamine levels are just exhausted by all of the flashing notifications and constant entertainment and hot takes and people screaming and just everything. And we're just tired. And we don't make space for all because we don't consider the fullness of who God is. And so in our prayer lives, I just wonder, when we talk about praying out of all, praying out of all is really the pathway to peace. When we pray out of all, it starts with prayer. Prayer is our pathway to being in awe of God. Because it allows us to really do two things. It allows us to focus on the reality of who God is. And it allows us to stir up a sense of awe and affection for the reality of how great God is. We don't do this if we're not intentional about it. How often do we make space to pray like this? This is this really beautiful psalm where the psalmist is just writing about the magnitude of God's greatness. And it's amazing to me because if we've been in church for a while— then we know what's true about God. We know what's true about Jesus and how he has saved us and how he lived a perfect life and died on the cross in exchange for our sins and then rose again three days later so we could have eternal life. We've heard about the holiness of God, how he is beyond what we can conceive in his perfection and his love and his sovereignty and his power and all of it. But at the end of the day, we're like, nah, I don't know, I want to turn on ESPN. How does that happen? It's because our hearts don't center on the greatness of God naturally. We, we've got to pause and make space for that. So in our prayer lives, you know, hopefully you've been going through the prayer guide that we have on the app or the, the hard copies out there. How, how are we weaving time into our lives when we pray to stop and just consider the reality of who God is? And I know he's big. How do I do that? How do I know who God is? One of the powerful aspects of God's word is that it is inspired by God and tells us the truth about who he is. And so in God's word, this is filled with accounts of the reality of who God is. Old Testament, New Testament, everywhere. We see constant reminders of the greatness of God and the depth of his love and his character. And do you remember when you first read that and heard that? I remember when I was in um, sixth grade, we were at summer camp. I, I was attending Grace Covenant Church in Austin, Texas. And our youth pastor was a man named Matt Cassidy. And he did an amazing job of teaching the Bible in a way that we could understand when we were 12. The summer camp that year's theme was actually on the return, right, in the book of Nehemiah. And so he talked about God as a concept of perfection and holiness. 
and being a kid with a slightly dysfunctional family life and some anger issues, the idea of a perfect God in the midst of a broken world was unbelievably attractive to me. The largeness of God in nature, his perfection and his holiness were this draw to my heart, which wasn't an accident because it's how we were designed to be drawn to God. We're designed to be drawn to that which is holy and good. So where are we making space in our prayer life to dwell on these realities? It's good for us to make space in our prayer life to go to God in desperation and to go to God and wrestle and, and to go to God in doubt. We have a God who can handle that. It is good for our souls to also go to God in a place where we are dwelling in awe of his nature. When is the last time you simply sat in prayer and were awed by the bigness and greatness of God? As a people, we have to be a people who continue to be awed by the reality of who God is. Our hearts are in danger when we disconnect them from his character. And so, as God's people, we want to pray and dwell in the majesty of who God is. And so often we dwell in the majesty of everything else. We want to make that appropriate exchange where we put down the cheap, shiny stuff that captivates us of the world and we pick up the holiness and greatness of God. And that's daunting because for a lot of us, we hear that and we're like, well, I haven't done that well. And if God is big and great, how can I approach him? Because I kind of have messed up. I haven't opened my Bible in a year. Um, I haven't really prayed outside of, you know, before I open the credit card bill or before I take the test. Um, so do I really want to try to re-engage a God that's that big? Can I trust him? If he's that big, isn't he going to be kind of ticked that I've been worshiping this other stuff? Let's keep going because the fact that he connects God's bigness with us is this key part of theology that we're able to wrap our arms around. So let's keep going here. He says, when I look at the heavens, your heavens, the work of your fingers, the heavens is the work of God's fingers, is a beautiful poetic picture of his greatness and creativity, that the heavens themselves are a work of God's fingers. The moon and the stars, which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him? And the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings, be the angels is what most people would say, and crowned him with glory and honor. So we have the transcendence of God or the otherness of God. I have all kinds of stuff falling out of my Bible. I should look in here more often apparently because there's just, there's stuff everywhere. Um, Perry, there's some work of yours down here actually. It's excellent. Thank you. Um, we have this picture of the transcendence of God, of his bigness and holiness and his otherness. God's different than us. We can't understand him. You can't conceive nor can I the strangeness of the glory of God. Graham Greene said that, right? Um, which is just another West Wing throwback for those of you that were here last week. And so I think when we see the otherness and the strangeness of God, the differentness of God, he feels inaccessible. How do we square that with a God that loves us? Psalm 8 makes this connection. Look at the two realities that he talks about with how God views us. How do we go to a God that's so far away? He says, the Son of Man is cared for by the Lord. He says, who is man that you're mindful of him, that you think of him, that you care of him? The same God that painted the moon and the stars in the sky also thinks about and loves people. Humanity is a treasured creation of our Father in heaven. He goes on to say that you've crowned man with glory and honor. 
So this is the bridge. This is where the transcendence or the difference and the otherness of God meets the imminence or the closeness of God. How is God so holy and far away but also so close? It's because he loves us. It's that simple. We can go to God in prayer and trust him because he loves us. It is safe for us to go into the presence of a God who inspires all because the same God that has this magnitude of holiness and sovereignty with that same magnitude expresses a love and value for us. That bridge of God's transcendence and eminence is his love for us, that he cares for us, that he has crowned us in his glory. And so we have access, we have the ability, we have the invitation to go to God in prayer and enjoy his nature. And so for us, so often we have this barrier when we talk about this first point, if we want to dwell in the majesty of God, you're like, not me, you don't understand. God and I, we're not, we're not okay. We kind of have some issues, or I've been indifferent, and I'm just not sure. I don't know as much Bible as I probably should. Point two, this middle section of the psalm overcomes any barrier that we could put in front of ourselves that would give us a reason to not go into God's presence and be awed by him. We are loved and invited. We have been made space for us to stand in his presence and be awed because God loves us. Because he has created us with care and intention and has crowned us with glory. We have this special, unique place in creation. We have the ability to be awed by God. So now what? Now what? We should be awed by God. His love for us has removed any barriers to being awed by him. Now what? How does that play out? Why does that matter? He actually, he, he even answers that question a little bit here. In verse 5, verse 6, he says, You have given him dominion over the works of your hands and have put all things under his feet, all the sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, and whatever passes along the paths of the seas. He finishes the same way he started. He says, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. He's saying there's this visible reality that reflects the majesty and greatness of God. The way that God designed creation reflects his majesty. He ends this with this very practical, tangible truth about who God is. He says, God in his majesty and sovereignty invited and included us in the way creation works. We've been given dominion over creation. We've been given the ability to shepherd and take care of what God has made. The birds of the air, the animals, the fish, all of it is set under man in God's created order. So let's tangibly talk about why that matters and why this should create all. This is one of those spaces that's called natural revelation. It's the idea that the very essence and nature of the created world around us points to the greatness of God, right? And so um, if you have ever been somewhere that is, that is just naturally beautiful, um, anywhere in the state of Texas. I'm kidding. Some of you guys are like, I've been to Lubbock. I don't know. Um, Anywhere that you have been that is a naturally beautiful place, when you go to the mountains, when you go to the beach, when you go to a garden, when you go to a zoo, when you go on a plane and kind of look down and just see the expanse of what is underneath you, all of that magnitude of creation is supposed to do something to our hearts. 
that is supposed to reflect something about the God that created that because it came from somewhere. Within that order, there's actually a system in the way things work. And it's fascinating to me that, you know, you guys understand for like the first 1,500 years or so of, of, of Christianity, the church and science were on the same side. Like it's relatively new that they're opponents. And one of the reasons for this is when you dig into so much of how the world works, it is a reflection and testimony and invitation for us to understand that this was designed. It's created to be self-sustaining. It's created to be well, frankly, it's created to work. When you look at ecosystems and the way that nature interacts with itself, when you look at the good that happens when humanity appropriately cultivates and stewards nature, there is a reflection of God's goodness in that. Because the natural outpouring of God's people understanding creation and playing their role in it leads to flourishing for everyone. It is good for nature and it's good for the people. We've been invited in to have this, this peek into God's majesty and his greatness in the very way that he's ordered creation. Think about the way that we're able to even feed ourselves. And I don't mean like going to fast food, although that's fine, whatever. But like, I mean, think about the fact that like you can put something in the ground and water happens and then something else happens and then something grows and then you take it off of there and then you put it in the store and you eat it. That's a simplified version. I understand there's more steps, right? But like, that's, that's it, right? Um, we had our Men's Connect event just a couple weeks ago, and um, man, Stephen Sims brought meat that, that came out of an animal. My, my youngest loves animals and was horrified to learn that that's where meat came from. But like, that came out of an animal that God created and put here. We didn't engineer that meat. We've started to, and I think that's getting weird, but we'll see. Um, but that meat at least came from a real animal. There's a rhythm in nature that's put into creation that is supposed to put us in awe of the one who created it. So let's, let's think about the natural pushback we have to that right now because when we think about the way that creation is designed it can be difficult for us to be in awe of God because the way that creation seems to be designed right now seems like it kind of stinks sometimes because we can look and say well I don't know because the the apparently I've been on my Twitter feed and the environment's not doing really well and apparently um, macro industrial agricultural practices are actually killing our soil and doing bad things to our animals um, and it seems like there's all of this stuff happening within this created order that's gone sideways a little bit it doesn't seem like it's working and one of the reasons why maybe we have a hard time being awed by the God that created it is because sometimes his creation kind of doesn't seem that great what happened how can we be in awe of a God who created a broken world? It's the ultimate question that, that we're meant to ask, I think, coming out of this. One of the biggest barriers I think we have in this awe is the brokenness of the system that we live in. So let's zoom out and look at, at, at what Scripture says, right? Because here's what we know. That in the midst of our awe and worship of God, we are naturally, emotionally, physically impacted by the brokenness of the world that God created. And that brokenness came from sin, right? In Genesis 3, we see sin enter the world, and it broke everything. It broke us. It broke creation itself. And so in the midst of that brokenness, how can we be in awe of a God who has us live in a broken place? And the answer to that question is key 
and actually it, it, it makes our all exponential when we gr grip our arms around it. And that, that, that place is here. It's at the communion table. Because the gospel of Jesus Christ says that the God that we are invited to worship, the God that created the universe, the God that created man, has chosen through his love and through his sovereignty to redeem us in our brokenness with the blood of his son, Jesus Christ. And these are tangible reminders that lend us into a place of affection and awe for our Father because God did not look at a world that humanity broke and said, I'm going to start again. He said, I'm going to redeem this. And so our awe of a loving Father really culminates in the awe that we have when we understand the magnitude of salvation. That God is working to restore all things and all of creation back to a place of perfection that will, through a clear lens, unmuddied by the brokenness of sin, reflect the true nature and magnitude of God's holiness and his goodness and his glory in a way that we will experience life that we only get these little windows of here in the midst of our brokenness. And so maybe as you're in a place where you're reading this and you're struggling to be in awe of God because of the brokenness of sin, maybe this is a week to put extra emphasis on the reality of what's happening here that we have these tangible reminders that we don't have a God that's forgotten us in our hurt. We don't have a God that's condemned us in our sin. We don't have a God that has left us to experience the pain of the judgment that we deserve for worshiping things that aren't actually God. We have a God that died on the cross to redeem us and save us. We have a God who has offered us eternal life, the forgiveness of sins, a new heart, and the ability to know and love him for eternity. And so this week, as we look at our faith, as we look at who God is and what that means for us, my ask is that we would be a people that would take time to be awed by the reality of who God is. And the foundation of that awe is the death and resurrection of Jesus. And so let this be a time as we respond in worship where we respond in awe. And may we be people that continue to make space for that awe where we have a hunger for the character of God, a hunger for the holiness of God and the transcendence of God, because through Jesus Christ, that same transcendent God is imminent and lives within us. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you for the reality that you're bigger than what we can understand. And God, I just pray that in a busy culture, we would not stop being awed by you. Help guard our hearts from being impressed with the wrong things. Help us to be a people that genuinely enjoy your goodness and your holiness, even though so much of it is beyond what we can grasp the fullness of. Continue to show us who you are. Continue to meet us when we make space to be impressed by your bigness. God, help us be a people that love you and understand what it means that you have created us and created the universe to be a reflection of your goodness. And help us to be firmly anchored in the truth of what that means through our faith in Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.